Hey everybody, this is Hunter Williams. Today is going to be episode 91 of the NeuroEdge podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in if you are listening today. Today is actually November 3rd, 2020, election day. So before I jump into the podcast today, actually, let's talk about what we got for the podcast today. So on today's menu, we have remote viewing, game theory, obsession, cross-pollination, and minimalism. So Pretty diverse array of topics, but what I want to talk about is these few things and then how they kind of play into helping us be the best best version of ourselves, have sort of a mental model and mental framework for operating and becoming the happiest, highest performing, healthiest version of ourselves, like I always talk about. So that being said, today again is election day. So whatever you do, just make sure that you choose the site of light resonance. I'm sure if you are watching this, you're someone that is obsessed and encouraged to make yourself the best. So as we try to do that as a collective species, I just hope that you make the right choice within your heart to do the right thing within the system that we live in to make the world a better place, spread love, spread harmony, spread peace, and spread resonance to the rest of the world through the principles that we agree upon as a nation. So I'm a huge history and politics buff. Obviously, I don't really get into that onto into my podcast and my channel as much, at least not for now. But that being said, I do ask that you do your part as we all have our civic duty here as a country that is built on individual free will, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So that being said, again, what I'm going to jump into today, again, re- remote viewing, game theory, obsession, cross-pollination, and minimal minimal excuse me, minimalism. And what I'm going to do is just do a brief overview of each of these topics, talk about them a little bit, talk about how they interplay to what's going on in the world right now and how we see the world. And again, with the caveat that I'm not an expert on any of these topics, these are things that I'm researching at any given time. And I love to talk about and bring to you as a podcast listener, video watcher, or however medium you're consuming this, to make your life better. So let's jump on into it. Let me share my screen. Let's see. So number one is going to be remote viewing. So this is something that I have been pretty interested in for probably the last couple of years since I came across it in my research. But uh, remote viewing is the practice of seeking impressions about a distant or unseen target, purportedly sensing with the mind. And I actually just read a book by a guy named Ingo Swan, who was one of the premier remote viewers in the CIA back in the 60s and 70s when they had a program that was going on with this. Now, whether they still have a program going on or not today, that is obviously privy to a select few people, not myself, but uh, within the government that may be doing this. But Um, Basically, it's this idea that you can sit in a room and then through intense meditation techniques, draw in and understand something that is going on completely separate from you. Not only could that be on anywhere on the planet, but also anywhere in the universe. So if you've never been introduced to concepts like this, it is a pretty crazy thing to have introduced in your brain. But I just want to give some overview of the topic and then kind of talk about the book I read by Ingo Swan. Uh, but remote viewing experiences have historically been criticized for a lack of proper controls and repeatability. 
There is no scientific evidence that remote viewing exists, and the topic of remote viewing is generally regarded as pseudoscience. However, typically a remote viewer is expected to give information about an object, event, person, or location that is hidden from physical view and separated some distance. And this is where I really came across it. There's a guy named Russell Targ, who I believe he was uh, from the Stanford Research Institute. So Russell Targ and Harold Putoff from SRI, which is Stanford Research Institute, are generally credited with coining the term remote viewing to distinguish it from the closely related concept of clairvoyance, which is thought to be kind of your run-of-the-mill psychic person. Um, although according to Targ, the term was first suggested by Ingo Swan, again, who I just talked about in December 1971 during an experiment at the American Society for Psychical Research in New York City. So um, it was popularized in the 1990s upon the declassification of certain documents related to the Stargate Project, a $20 million research program that had started in 1975 and was sponsored by the U.S. government in an attempt to determine any potential military application of psychic phenomena. And the program was terminated in 1995, allegedly. That's my own aside. But um, it was terminated in 1995 after it failed to produce any actual intelligence information. So that's kind of your generic take on it. Um, and I've got a link here where you can kind of go explore some of this. But um, one thing that I came across in Ingo Swan's book is he talked about this idea. He was doing a remote viewing experiment. And it, it was proven in a lot of cases to have solved different things where they located hostage situations where there were terrorists out there. But in his book, he talked about an instance where he was remote viewing, I believe it was the Jupiter. And he told them there would be rings around Jupiter. And at this point when he did it, I guess it was back in the 70s. I'm not sure the exact dates. But we had not yet sent a uh, spaceship by Jupiter. And they thought he was talking. And he said there were going to be rings around Jupiter, like ice rings like there are around Saturn. And everybody said, no, that's Saturn. You're crazy. And come to find out a few years later when it went by, there were ice rings around Jupiter that were photographed. So pretty cool. And if you want to get into this, I recommend definitely reading some of his books. Check out YouTube. Um, if you type in Russell Targ, he has some good lectures and different interviews that he has done in the past. But remote viewing, it, it's a pretty crazy concept because I think we're at this point in human consciousness evolution where people are becoming much more intuitive. They're starting to understand a lot of things that everybody has experienced at some point in their life, but there may not be, quote unquote, scientific evidence pr to prove and uh, I think we've all had deja vu, different things like that, where we've seen things before they actually happen. And remote viewing is kind of the science of trying to hone in on this. So, again, is it something that you could verify just like you could verify gravity, like an apple draw, dropping from a tree? Not right now, but it may be something in the future that we can do. And what I want to say is remote viewing, just to kind of sum it up and put it into a package, is whether or not it's true, it's been proven that some people can do it, maybe some others not as well. We do know, though, that the power of the human mind is so much more than we can actually fathom. We've all had experiences of telepathy where you go to call someone and then that person calls you before you can dial their number, different things like that. So I think the key takeaway with remote viewing is that maybe it's not, you know, tomorrow, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, where we really understand how it's working in our brain and how human brains are all interconnected with the plane of consciousness around us. However, that we are much more powerful than we give ourselves credit for, particularly in regards to the mind. And you can use your mind to do a lot more than you think is possible. So 
that's just what I wanted to kind of go over and gloss over with remote viewing. Now, moving along, let's talk about game theory. So I've always been someone that is fascinated by math and numbers. And I guess you could say numbers is kind of how I see the world. And game theory is a really cool idea. And again, just like with the remote viewing, I'm not an expert by this on any means. However, I think it is very interesting. It's a very interesting framework through which how to see the world. I think if you can apply game theory to a lot of areas of your life, you're going to see more success and you're going to have a mental model for understanding things a lot better. But what is game theory? So game theory is a, a theoretical framework for conceiving social situations among competing players. In some respects, game theory is the science of strategy, or at least the optimal decision-making of independent competing actors in a strategic setting. So again, science of optimal decision-making. What's one thing I always talk about? Our life is an accumulation and the summation of all the decisions that we make. If we can create a framework for making better decisions through our mental power and mental strength, we can kind of, at least I think, create a better world around us because we are creating a framework in which we're gamifying the world. So that's kind of what game theory is, is viewing life and economic, particularly in a lot of cases, economic decisions as something that can be gamified and looking through life, through life, through a strategic lens, looking at life through a strategic lens. So I think it's really cool and just wanted to kind of jump on into it. So the key pioneers of game theory were mathematician John von Neumann and economist Oscar Morgenstern in the 1940s. Mathematician John Nash is regarded by many as providing the first significant extension of von Neumann and uh, Morgenstern's work. So what are some of the key takeaways of game theory? So game theory is a theoretical framework to conceive social situations among competing players and produce optimal decision-making of independent and competing actors in a strategic setting. So, Using game theory, real-world scenarios for such situations as pricing, competition, and product releases can be laid out and their outcomes predicted. Scenarios include the prisoner dilemma, which I'm going to talk about, and the dictator game, among many others. So it is assumed players within the game are rational and will strive to maximize their payoffs in the game. And a lot of times in life, that might not necessarily be the case. So what I wanted to do is jump down to the basics of game theory. So the focus of game theory is the game, which serves as a model of an interactive situation among rational players. So the key to game theory is that one player's payoff is contingent on the strategy implemented by the other player. The game identifies the player's identities, preferences, and available strategy, and how these strategies affect the outcome. Depending on the model, various other requirements or assumptions may be necessary. So it has a wide range of applications, including psychology, evolutionary biology, war, politics, economics, and business. And despite its many advances, game theory is still a young and developing science. So according to game theory, the accent choices of all the participants affect the outcome of each. So I think this is much more of a proper lens through which to view the world. So whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's business, health, fitness, uh, relationships, anything, understand that everybody is kind of working in that scenario, in that environment to optimize for self-maximization. So they're trying to get the best for their self out of any given situation. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be helping other people, but to a certain state, extent, anything that you're gonna be involved in, most of the players in that are gonna be optimizing for the best outcome for their self. 
Now, when you realize this, you can create institutions, businesses, groups, anything around that to create an environment in which this is thriving and you can combine the interest of everyone optimizing for self-satisfaction to your advantage. And I think that's where really good businesses are built. Even socially responsible businesses are built is because you can kind of take all those factors into place. So um, you can read more about this, but what I wanted to do is just give an example. So an example of game theory would be the prisoner's dilemma. So this is the most well-known example of game theory. So just to take an example, there are two criminals arrested for a crime. So prosecutors have no hard evidence to convict them. However, to gain a confession, officials remove the prisoners from their solitary cells and question in separate chambers. So just think about one prisoner in one room being interrogated, another prisoner in another room being interrogated. Neither prisoner has the means to communicate with each other. Officials present four deals, often displayed as a two-by-two box. So if both of those prisoners confess, they will each receive a five-year prison sentence. If prisoner one confesses, but prisoner two does not, prisoner one will get three years and prisoner two will get nine years. If prisoner two confesses, but prisoner one does not, prisoner one will get 10 years and prisoner two will get two years. If neither confesses, each will serve two years in prison. In prison. So the most favorable strategy is to not confess. However, neither is aware of the other strategy and without certainty that one will not confess, both will likely confess and receive a five-year prison sentence. The Nash equilibrium suggests that a prison, in the prisoner's dilemma, both players will make the move that is best for them individually, but worst for them collectively. The expression tit for tat has been determined to be the optimal strategy for optimizing a prisoner's dilemma. Tit for tat was introduced by Anatole Rappaport, who developed a strategy in which each participant is an iterated prisoner's dilemma following a course of action consistent with his opponent's previous term. For example, if provoked, player subsequently responds with retaliation. If unprovoked, the player cooperates. So, Think about that, and again, that's kind of a small microcosm of it, but think about how your actions or interactions ripple effect into the world. And again, because everyone is, is optimizing for self-maximization, you have this framework through which a lot of the world in social situations and economic situations are created known as game theory. So if that's interesting to you, definitely check it out. If you would like for me to talk more about this, I love talking about these things, so I could talk about it all day. And let's see, moving along. So something I've been thinking a lot about lately is one, applying an athlete's obsession to whatever it is, particularly if it's in business, whatever it is you're trying to pursue. I think athletes growing up have a really cool experience because you almost are acting like a professional way before especially in your younger years, many people have to become professional in whatever it is their job they're doing, not necessarily a professional athlete, but just whatever it is they're doing. So I think if we can apply that framework to how we treat our life, we can be so much more successful. And if we viewed whatever we're doing the same way athletes view themselves, we can be so much better what we're doing. And I'm saying that to myself as much as anybody, but I found this cool article by Kobe Bryant uh, that he actually wrote for a, website called the Players Tribune. And uh, Kobe, I think, is one of the most well, best examples to use in terms of dedication, obsession to your craft, and obviously rest in peace to Kobe Bryant. But 
I'll just uh, kind of skim through this article real quick. So he talks about um, on November 12th, 1996, Allen Iverson dropped 35 on the Knicks in a win at the Garden. On November 12th, 1996, I played five minutes and finished with two points on the Lakers when at Houston. Uh, when he checked into his hotel room later that night and saw, saw it on SportsCenter, he flipped the table through the chairs and broke the TV. He thought he had been working hard, five minutes, two points. I needed, He needed to work harder. On March 19th, 1999, Iverson put 41 points and 10 assists on Kobe Bryant in Philadelphia. And if you're listening, there's a picture of him backing down Kobe Bryant. So working harder was not enough. I had to study this man maniacally. And I'm reading this in first person from Kobe Bryant because he wrote this article. And he says he obsessively read every article and book I could find about AI, obsessively watched every game he had played, going back to the IUPU All-American game, obsessively studied his every success and his every struggle. I obsessively searched for any weakness I could find. Search the world for musings to add to my AI muse cage. So you see, like Kobe just became a man possessed with studying Allen Iverson and how to beat him. Uh, this led him to study how great white sharks hunt seals off the coast of South Africa. And which is going to lead me something to um, the next thing I'm talking about called cross-pollination. But on uh, February 20th in Philadelphia, um, PJ, which I'm guessing is, is uh, Coach Phil Jackson, gave me the assignment. Guarding it at the start of the second half, no one knew how much this challenge meant to me. I wanted him to feel the frustration I felt. I wanted everyone who laughed at the 41 and 10 he put on me to choke on their laughter. So you see he takes it personal. Um, he would publicly say that neither of us could stop the other. I refuse to believe that. I score 50, you score zero. That is what I want to believe. When I started guarding AI, he had 16 and a half. He finished the game with 16. Revenge was sweet, but I wasn't satisfied after the win. I was annoyed that he made me feel the way that way in the first place. So I swore from that point on to approach every matchup as a matter of life and death. No one was going to have that kind of control over my focus ever again. I will choose who I want to target and lock in. I will choose whether or not your goals for the upcoming season compromise where I want to be in 20 years. If they don't, happy hunting to you. But if they do, I will hunt you obsessively. It's only natural. Signed, Kobe Bryant. So I bring that up just to talk about how dedicated we have to be to our craft. So when Kobe saw Allen Iverson and saw what he was doing, he became so obsessed that he was even looking at nature shows to create an allegory in his head about how he should be acting on the court. And I think if we could all take some of those principles and apply it to our life, it is unquestionable without a doubt that we're going to be good at what we do. But we have to want it bad enough. We have to want it just like Kobe wanted it. I'm not saying there are other basketball players that Wanted it worse than Kobe. Obviously, he was very physically talented, too. However, we can all take lessons from the kind of dedication that some of the best athletes have in the world to their craft and apply them to our lives today. Which leads me to my next thing, which is cross-pollination. So um, I've been thinking about this a lot because I love reading. And I, loving, I love reading a diverse range of topics and different things. And uh, cross-pollination, and I just put up the dictionary definition of it, is a sharing or interchange of knowledge, ideas, as for mutual enrichment, cross or cross fertilization. Um, so Jay Abraham, who is a business guy that I follow and really like, talks about this a lot. He claims he is so successful because he's been exposed to so many different industries and he can actually take ideas from different industries and apply them to other areas of your life. And I challenge you, this is something that I'm working on. I challenge you to look at everything that happens in your life as a learning experience and see how you can cross pollinate that different things. So do you pull something from maybe your workout, your fitness world, that you could apply into your business life? 
Do you see something in your business life that you could apply to your personal life with relationships that you have with other people? Because I think everything that we do is life. Everything that we engage in as human beings is all part of the human experience. And if we can actually not create silos around the different types of experiences we have, but kind of cross pollinate all the experiences we have and use them to combine into each other, one is going to enrich our life as a whole, but we're gonna make so much more progress because we are working with things whereas most people create a box around the information that they consume and use for whatever it is. So a lot of people view themselves as they have their personal life, they have their job, they have different things, they have their leisure and they're separate. But the great thing about being a human is we can take these ideas and different things that we learn and experience from all these areas of our life and combine them into other areas. So I know that's kind of a broad definition, but just think about everything that you do is contributing to what you are doing. And I'm guilty of this myself because a lot of times I feel like I should just be working, working, working until I, you know, till my eyes are bloodshot and I can't work anymore. That's actually not very, it's not the most powerful thing because the work that I create, especially as an entrepreneur, it's going to come a lot from the ideas that I have. And I can't have great ideas unless I'm exposing myself to a lot. And I have to allow myself to be in different situations and exposed to different things in order to cross pollinate ideas from other things that I can apply to each other. And that's one thing I've noticed in my career as an entrepreneur, I have done a good job of doing and can do is looking at other things outside the normal paradigm of whatever everybody else in my industry is looking at and kind of cross pollinate with different ideas because there's not a lot of people doing that and it takes actual critical thinking skills to do so. So let's go to minimalism. So I found this article on the minimalist.com who they have a podcast and everything. It's really cool. They talk about minimalism, um, but it's this 90, 90 minimalism rule. So just wanted to go over this. Basically it is, if you're not using something, if you haven't used something in the last 90 days and you don't plan on using it in the next 90 days, do you really need it? Or maybe it's 120 days or maybe it's six months. However, if you can create this bracket around things that you're using, that you have, whether it's in your house or wherever it is, it's kind of this idea of getting rid of everything you don't need. I can tell you the last few months I've been working on this in terms of just in my living space, removing things that I don't need in my room, office, and all these things. And it's so much more liberating to not have a bunch of stuff around you. And I think as Americans, at least, we have been convinced that we need a bunch of stuff to make us happy when we need a lot of material possessions. And I actually, having had that mindset for a while, it's actually much more freeing to be on the other side where the less stuff, the better, because what it allows you to do is it frees up headspace. It sounds kind of crazy, especially if you've never thought of this paradigm before, but the more material possessions you have, the more it is actually taking up in your head because you have to account for these things. You have to clean them. You have to make sure that things are fixed or whatnot, and it becomes almost a full-time job taking care of your stuff so that you're just wasting time outside of your working hours taking care of your stuff, which nobody's going to care about anyway because most people have stuff to try to impress people that they don't care to impress in the first place, but they think it's going to make them happy if they're impressing other people. So all that being said, look at things in your life. Do you have a bunch of material possessions around you? And maybe it's not 90 days, maybe it's six months. I know for me, I just went through and gave away a bunch of clothes because I hadn't worn them in six months. I knew I wasn't going to wear them the next six months when the weather changed. So I got rid of them. And having that much fewer items in my personal space 
was so much more liberating and so much more freeing because my mind can actually focus on producing and creating things that I want to do. I think that's part of the problem is when you have a lot of stuff, it takes up capacity in your brain. And when that brain capacity gets taken up, it becomes that much harder to create things. And it's hard enough to create anyway. If you're someone that wants to create a business, uh, writing, videos, whatever it is, you need capacity in your brain to do so. And if you are filling in your life with a bunch of material possessions, chances are you're not going to be creating the maximum level possible. So it is my opinion that I think the generation coming up is much more aligned with this um, just because they've had the internet, they've been exposed to ideas and everything. And the economy and everything is set up now differently than it may have been at one point where you can rent a lot of stuff and uh, still be financially well off doing so. So that's my opinion on that. And if it's something that you know I've been working on, I think you should try it too. And as far as having the mental capacity and creative capacity in your brain to do things you want to do and pursue the goals you want to achieve, whether that's better wealth, better health, better relationships, whatever it is, I think that's something that's pretty powerful and one thing I am trying to implement in my life. So pretty cool article. If you want to check it out, go on the minimalist.com. I've got kind of on there, but basically the rule is you don't need it for 90 days. If you haven't used it in 90 days and don't need it for the next 90 days, get it out and your life is going to be a lot less stressful. So that is it for today. Again, thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening to the podcast. I hope this was valuable. Let me know your feedback. Also head over to the Facebook group and leave some questions for me and I can do maybe another Q&A episode coming up soon. And with that being said, don't forget, get out and vote today. And I will talk to you guys soon. Peace.